Architectural Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, I am joined by Fergus Fielden and Edmund Fowles of the London-based practice Fielden Fowles. Both Fergus and Edmund met in, in, in university and undergraduate and actually started their practice while students uh, in separate master's programmes. Since then, over the last 10 years, their practice has developed rapidly in both the complexity and the richness of the territory it explores. They have developed a clear methodology, one deeply invested in a tectonic examination of the practical and economic ways by which their buildings might be made, interrogating this in the search for the opportunity for character, for form, and for a resonant atmospheric architecture. In this conversation, we go through the journey that's informed this practice and where they are today. I do hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome, Fergus and Evan to Kingston. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So how long have you guys been in practice together? Officially, we've started, well, we had our first studio in 2010. So that's when we, we said we're, we're proper practice. But we had a project straight out of part one, which we were delivering over the course of the next well, three years after that, I suppose. Yeah, so that actually began in, um, we graduated together in 2005 from Cambridge University. Uh, and we met there, we began collaborating together on projects. And uh, as we left um, university, we were offered this project and um, wanted to work together on, on this job. And it was a small house in Wales. Um, it was very speculative at the time. Um, Gavin, the, the client, approached us and said, you know, I've got this piece of land, can you do something with it? can you try and get me planning and we were just complete novices by that point um, and it took a very long time to kind of uh, plug away at the project over over a course of I think a year two years mm-hmm. while we were working elsewhere so yeah. I was at Hopkins Architects yeah so, um, I was at House Tompkins for a while yeah yeah so that's after part one yeah and then so you did your part twos uh, so I was at the RCA yeah and Ed was at the AA and that was why you were both working on the design of this house, or it was being delivered during our part two, yeah. Okay. Part two, okay. So, and so that decision to go to different schools—were you consciously acting as a practice at that stage, or was it just a collaboration that mightn't go anywhere? Uh, it's a good question. I think we we were we were close to one another. We were working on this project, but we didn't particularly feel like we had to kind of go to the same school. And you, you had a scholarship op- offer, so that was... Yeah, I think there was something alluring about um, doing something completely different from mm. our undergraduate. Yeah. Uh, undergraduate yeah. We studied under Tom Emerson in our third year. It was very building-oriented, and um, I went to the AA because I wanted to learn more about urbanism. And studied yeah. under Carlos villanueva Brandt. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, did a project on food urbanism in my final year, so it was a very different scale of architecture and I think that was a very nice counterpart to being on site with T. Bren, the house that we were mm. delivering in Wales at the same time. Yeah. So you, one could afford to not be doing buildings at part two because we were delivering one, mm. trying to deliver one on site yeah. uh, in our evenings and weekends. And you were in the RCA, what were you up to? Well, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't necessarily up to as much architecture as, yeah. uh, as I would have imagined spent a lot of time in the workshops and um, developing other skills I suppose Um, and it was again there was more urbanism themes uh, and I wanted to kind of be I don't know release myself in terms of representation and making and and other themes so that that's what I wanted from it Um, and I just had a child just before which was a another um, kind of constraint so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so you, yeah. sharpens the mind exactly yeah. yeah focused my time quite a lot more yeah than I had previously yeah so I mean it's interesting isn't it because your practice is very oriented about building and mm. the making of building and the contingencies of building mm. and those places aren't no at all mm. yeah I, sometimes I get annoyed about that you know mm. I kind of go are they avoiding the actual meat of the subject mm. i mean i know i know that there's other areas that are interesting mm. but having been through that and as architects with a position where where do you see that where do you see those things? well I, I think ed and i have very different diploma or master's experiences i mean i was definitely i was far from a, a star student i've been really strong at undergraduate but i was i was not a strong uh, master's student because i had my own agenda and I suppose I was perhaps 
slightly at odds with um, with some of the the culture of of of, of less architecture. And yeah. so the bit which I got excited by was the workshops and learning how to weld and make things and being more hands-on. Um, that was certainly my that was that was what I loved about about being at the RCA and the other disciplines as opposed to as opposed to the architecture. It's a cross-pollination of being in an art school, yeah. basically. Yeah. Which is quite hard. It's still quite hard to do. Yeah. And if you if you're willing to say, well, actually, I'm not going to focus on necessarily kind of producing the the finest project or the most celebrated project but uh, it's more about the process then it, it's great yeah but you have to be quite kind of confident you take a risk you take a risk yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. I had my own agenda at that point so I was already more focused and more excited by the long-term prospects of setting up yeah so um, and you with Carlos yeah, well, I think you know, sort of similar underlying frustrations about not getting our teeth into a building project, but then you don't go to the AA to deliver a building. <laughs> you, you go there to kind of broaden your thinking about what architecture is. And I think Carlos was a wonderful tutor mm. to do that. And actually he, um, he was very good at kind of encouraging us to be better presenters, better kind of orators about our work. Like, he would drill us about presenting and like having absolutely precise um, definitions for our projects. Um, I think that was a, probably one of the greatest things I'll take from, from that period. Um, and actually, my kind of yearning for building was being fulfilled outside of the AA through, through the project that Firk and I would deliver on together. So actually, I think it perhaps would have been overkill to be lumbered with doing technical drawings and being on site with, with TPRA and whilst also doing a building-focused project gotcha. yeah. at, at university. So. It's interesting. I know Carlos, and I'm very fond of him. He's always he's like Mr. AA at this stage, isn't he? He's mm. like been there. Mm. And I critted one of their students in a workshop we did years ago. And they were buildings. Mm. But you weren't allowed to critique them as buildings because the skill wasn't in anything physical in the building. Yeah. Mm. Which I actually think I completely get that you have a completely abstracted way of thinking about something. Mm. But at the end, there is an artefact proposed of sorts. Yeah. And it's legitimate to critique it as an artefact as a, rather than a rhetorical ideation. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And Carlos didn't resist it at all. He was perfectly open for that. But I do find that kind of an interesting question because you both teach now, right? Mm. So, and how do you see that? Like how, what, what, what's your relationship with your students and the briefs that you set? Mm-hmm. Well, we're, um, we, we did three years at the CAS and um, the focus was education design and I think for me um, it's more reflective of my own ad- undergraduate studies yeah. So, because um, we're teaching second and third years so I think the, the broad urban ideas don't really come to play, they, they may kind of surface um, some of the strongest students want to kind of engage more with, with the urban realm and, and kind of outside their specific site but um, Actually, it's uh, more of a reflection of the way that Tom taught us, for example, yeah. you know, through large-scale model making, um, and also the drivers that interest us as a practice. So, we're particularly interested in education, uh, not just the delivery of education buildings, but the way that um, education can influence the way that we practice as as a as a firm, as a as a practice, and. Um, the kind of cyclical nature of it. Like we learn so much from our clients, from other consultants, from other disciplines, and that comes to bear on each of the projects we deliver, um, mm. whether it's an education project or an arts project or a factory. Um, so the, the three scales we, we've worked with at CAS have been you know, starting with primary education, then moving to secondary, and last year we did a, a studio called Well Built, and it was all about higher education, yeah. um, which was a really kind of um, fulfilling trio of, of themes to to work with. But the I guess what I'm saying is, what are the conversations you're hungry to have with your students? Do you know mm. what what what? Because obviously we, none mm. of us teach for altruistic reasons. Mm. Uh, although there's a bit of that. Uh, you know, I personally teach because it keeps me connected with some of the real mm. profound problems of architecture, which are very simply statable, actually, mm. Mm. but very easily get forgotten about yeah. in what are supposedly more sophisticated rhetorical contexts. Yeah. You know, it's darn hard to make an, an entrance, right, on the street. Mm. That's mm. a really difficult thing to do. 
and or it's very difficult to make a facade. Mm. You know, I think these things are extraordinarily complicated and mm. contingent and nuanced things. So I love all those conversations with students about, well, why is that better than that? Why do you think this mm. has got more skill or sophistication mm. than that? How are you making that judgment? Those kind of questions mm. keeping yeah. you on your toes. Yeah. Um, and I'm just interested because your, your practice is very interested in clearly in craft and in craft mm. traditions and in contemporary re-readings of those things, mm. potential for a language there. And is that something that your students are part of that conversation? Like, is that something that's feeding the practice? Are they asking you those kind of questions? Like, why, why is that trust? What, why, why is it a trust like that? Why yeah. do those things matter to you? Are you less interested in your own language than you are just to see what the students are doing? I mean, I think from the past three years, the, the real drive, the thing that has really ignited our interest in teaching an interest in doing education work specifically is the current political context, the way that schools are being delivered. The um, baseline designs for schools, for example, mm. was a real kind of nail in the coffin of education buildings in this country, and it, it really kind of fired Ferg and I up to work on education mm. buildings. And with that in mind, we, we try to kind of frame the, the units with the kind of, um, the sort of undercurrent of how do we build well but for as little as possible yeah. because Gove was suggesting that schools should be built for 1400 pounds square meter which is incredibly difficult yeah. and what emerged are things um, like prefabricated schools um, that are being delivered by quite dubious con contracting firms who will will give you a shed with yeah. a few windows around the edge but they're not particularly conducive to they're not uplifting they're not kind of uh, they don't dignify the act of learning they're like yeah, driven, driven by the constraints around cost, aren't they, and, and deliverability yeah. as opposed to education being at the heart of them. And so I think for us that's why testing different scales of education and now we're working on, we've got some kind of, we've got everything from preschool through to further edu further education college and higher education mm -hmm. and just, and all of these different contexts. I mean, I think with all our work we're testing it in these, in all sorts of different places around the country yeah. um, and those social drivers are really fundamental. I think the social drivers have influenced our teaching kind of really heavily and then Ed's been leading the unit there and then I've done a lot of kind of critting and talks at Bath University and other places around the country mm. and they, they have a completely different you know approach inevitably mm. um, in a way much less well much less London focused which is quite interesting mm -hmm. um, and with with fewer constraints so I think the balance is quite is, is really rich for us mm. having 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 your your sites which you've been selecting with your students in London and then seeing some of these other projects um, around the world as well so mm -hmm. I think it's interesting the point you make about our practice being very craft led um, very construction led which it is but interestingly the teaching basis has been very much more about the social agenda mm. as, as Ferg mentioned and it's how do you and the pedagog pedagogical discussions um, number of conversations we've had with different head teachers from different types of school mm. different ages of students um, which really kind of come together in um, the plan initially mm. you know, the organization of the school that organizational diagram and what interests us is that kind of the relationship between a school as a kind of small city or a small village um, and how that, how a school can become more civic, because I think schools have become very introverted. Mm. Um, they lack quality, um, largely because of the, the reduction in building costs. But um, what we were trying to ask our students to do was look at schools not just um, as introverted things, but how do they react back to the city? How, how do they become purposeful, useful um, um, sites for the wider community for example and it's something that we've been testing one-to-one -one at our own site in yeah. Waterloo. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that site, I mean that site is operated by a charity right? There's and two charities who yeah. initially kind of had had the negotiations about the lease and then we've helped unlock it effectively and we got more and more involved on a pro bono basis and then we suggested to get more involved um, rather than having to pull away because because of the, the lack of fees and we said how about we kind of come in as a as a partner um, so now the three organizations are, are kind of co-partners as it were 
and we we provide them with the design we provided the studio which we have shared space within so the the farm managers sit within our office they can use the meeting rooms and those facilities and then occasionally we use the rest of the farm so it's, it's quite a kind of fluid um, connection really and for the benefit of our listeners we're talking about waterloo farm right which is this site it's quite incongruous to find it there in the city yeah. which is yeah. basically simple single story yeah. medium span structures yeah and it's, it's effectively an urban farm yeah to allow certain types of learning activities and kind of social connections to be formed, am I right? That's yeah, kind of absolutely. how it works. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's a small plot of land, 100 metres by 17, on the edge of Archbishop's Park, opposite St Thomas's Hospital. So we're less than half a mile from Parliament, um, incredibly centrally located. The site is owned by St Thomas's, uh, and then it had, there's a five-year uh, lease with then an ex- a rolling extension. Um, to the charities, uh, and so and so we've we've built these structures. As you say, they're all single story timber frame, um, demountable structures that have been delivered uh, in several phases over the last four years, um, and now the site is is complete and fully functioning. So um, we have a big barn at one end, which forms the threshold, and that's the most civic building. Um, it's not just the threshold, but it's the event space. So it's used for farm activities, learning activities, but also at weekends to generate income to, to make the whole site sustainable. And at the other end is our studio and, and garden, uh, and that's, that's more kind of private, but uh, there's some crossover with, with farm activities in the garden, um, and it's more the kind of, the, yeah, the, the more uh, thinking end of the site, as it were, whereas the middle is all about farm activity, growing, animals, planting, um, and produce. And in terms of the buildings there, I mean, is it fair to say that that's a site that you were able to, experiment's the wrong word, but you were able to test ideas, like formal and structural ideas? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I think it's been a really, really important kind of evolution of our thinking on previous projects. It Um, feels like it, you know, when you go there and you see it, like particularly those linear structures with the Mm. overlapping roofs Mm. and... The structures were mostly driven by the economy of them, and um, there, there are three structures, three three primary structures. One being the animal pens, which is incredibly primitive, and we're talking kind of bush carpentry, sort of lapped joints, um, screwing through, um, so you're not screwing into end grain, and big kind of open ventilation gaps, crinkly tin. But um, working with a really fantastic engineer, um, Pete Laidler from Structure Workshop. Um, and so the drive has been how do you do this with the lowest skill possible for the first building and then we moved on to our studio and we, we worked with a, a former colleague of ours actually Alex Thomas who set up a company called Timber Workshop oh yeah, yeah. structure workshop and timber workshop and um, he, he worked for us um, we studied together at Cambridge actually and then he, he was one of our first employees and then worked with us for three or four years before moving down to Devon and setting up his own timber framing company, kind of learning how to, how to do timber framing. Um, so we worked very closely with him about a kind of um, a more uh, efficient way of delivering kind of timber framing. It was almost a system build, really, lots of repetition. Um, so our studio had one, you know, one section repeated, one frame 12 times, um, but everything happens in that section, whether it's the daylighting, the ventilation, which is achieved by the all kind of north lights which have a vent at the bottom yeah um, so all these considerations it's sort of working quite hard and for that reason we think it's probably one of our leanest buildings mm. ever delivered not least because we were paying for it so yeah, yeah. There's, there's nothing like kind of being your own client in order to kind yeah. of squeeze down the build costs you know we were using things like old travis perkins lintels to form the, the pathway the sort of paving on july which was incredibly low cost um agricultural crinkly product which is made of um binding um, old sort of fibres together. Um, so it was, it was also a really good education process for us to kind of manage a project and be the contractor. Mm-hmm. So we subbed out all the trades. Oh, very good, okay. And then the barn was the kind of third in that sort of trio of buildings, which um, in a way is sort of the more exuberant. Um, it's modelled more on a kind of ecclesiastical um, sort of typology with an aisle and naves. Yeah. It's broken down into three bays. 
and that was actually driven by cost again and by kind of breaking the span because actually to have a single span would have been you know, more complex um, more, more complicated and, and heavy duty jointing and bigger foundations under those columns so by actually adding two more columns into the plan each bay it was able to all the components were smaller and therefore cheaper and more manageable so there's this constant uh, if it comes back to that the education um, briefs that we are setting our students, you know, it begins from a social driver, and then there's a kind of a question about the cost and the economy of, of how we how we do things within the same constraints as everyone else. It's not about creating necessarily expensive buildings. Um, and and for, our, for our practice to be learning from those projects as we go, and it's interesting because you find that the learning off one project is informing another project, but which may actually occasionally be delivered in advance of that so it's it's nice now that the whole the whole site is is delivered and actually that was quite a linear process mm -hmm. but across the rest of our work there's themes within those projects that have been informing um, you know big big projects like uh, at Homerton College about the big frame and things so there's it, it's quite interesting you know that that kind of almost uh, well it's not quite cyclical but there's there's various patterns to that learning where we're kind of doing loops but progressing forwards um, and all these all these different projects feeding into one another, and that's that's when we set up. We said we wanted to we wanted to deliver as many buildings as we could, as fast as we could, in order to catch up with our learning, mm. because we were not we hadn't been in practice for ten years, and so we knew that we we had to kind of get smart quite quickly. And we found that the lessons learned through real projects um, along the way were far well. We 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 learned them far quicker. No, for sure. And I get all of that, but is there not something more operating, I mean, than frugality and reasonableness? Do you know what I mean? And there is. Mm. So I'm just wondering if we can talk about that thing. Yeah. I get the frugality and I get the pragmatics. Yeah. But... Beauty. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a poetic, right? So... Yeah, we hope. Yeah, so <laughs> we spent it long enough developing There, 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 there <laughs> is, and I'm just curious about those conversations. Yeah. I'm curious about those things, because sometimes, you know, we set out to do a project that's frugal, and of course, mm -hmm. frugality is the goal, but ultimately, frugality is a lens by mm -hmm. which you can make choices. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they are choices. Yeah. And they're being made with a view to a certain... Mm -hmm cultural or kind of a language that one's yeah. pursuing right mm -hmm. and I know the same things operative in your work and I'm yeah. curious about those conversations mm -hmm. what are they about it's something that we often talk about as a studio um, our values mm -hmm. and I think we we always shy away from talking about style or necessarily the kind of beauty or the look of something and we we tend to talk more about the kind of values inherent in the work, whether that's um, structural or a kind of tectonic set of values or a social set of values. Um, but through it necessarily comes a kind of, the, the, there's always a poetic drive to the project. We, we like telling stories through our work. We, we're heavily informed by history, by vernacular. And for me, the, yeah, for both of us, I think, the sense of place is a huge driver so w whenever we start a project I mean so many architects talk about a sense of place but our, our early projects were in very kind of rural settings very kind of sensitive in terms of being national parks or listed settings or whatever they may be and there was a kind of there was a, a slow observation of each context that um, that had come directly from when we'd been studying and we, we took straight into practice that was serving us both in terms of kind of planning, but actually it was much more about how it informed the architecture. So whether we were looking at, you know, the kind of the patina and the prevailing conditions, whether whether the certain angle on our timber cladding was going to kind of drip and leave certain marks over time or balancing, say, a recycled slate with a with a new slate in a way that it, it appeared much more much more historic than the project actually was. There's something about the kind of system building and the kind of component-based modern architecture that that sucks the whole soul out of out of building. Sure. And 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 for us, it was about the kind of hairiness of imperfection. So we wanted the plans to be as strict and as rational as they possibly could be, 
but then to to somehow be less controlling over the use of certain materials, uh, or at least initially that was that was our, our, some of our kind of early work exhibited. So that. you were relaxed what the material was. That was less foregrounded. I suppose well, relaxed with the precision of it, or, or uh, the kind of pristineness the, of the, the tolerance that you required. Yeah, yeah, somehow learning or learning on site about so working working with whoever was delivering the project. So. In T. Pren, there was a slate, a slate and large detail, that came from the the roofing contractor, and we were talking with him about what we were trying to achieve, and there was a constant, you know, kind of constant kickback. We were being told, well, you, we can't do this, or the building control officer was saying we don't want to push the window out this far because of the drip detail, and and there was this constant toing and froing where we found where the kind of the, the the boundary was where we could push it. And I think lots of our work is trying to kind of achieve a crispness. So it may be, uh, may be drawing from the vernacular or certain typologies, but actually the way that it's delivered is, is far more contemporary and probably couldn't have been achieved 100 years ago yeah. because of what's available to us now. And the irony with t Prime was that it was actually an incredibly high-tech building. It was a mm. SIPS panel frame. SIPS panels have only really been used in the UK for well, 10 years at that point, mm. probably. Having said that, it was then clad with slate that was taken off a hundred-year-old barn, which mm. was, you know, incredibly patterned and yeah. had to be cut down and reformatted, and because they were all tail-nailed. Um, but it built up this incredible patina of, mm. of kind of twenty-year-old moss on each mm. end, um, and then that was paired with the larch, which was felled within sight of the the building on the other side of the valley. Mm. Um, machined and, by the client. Yeah, and Welsh larch, not Siberian larch. Yeah. And, and done with a wood miser as opposed to, you know, being kind of machined somewhere else. It wasn't kiln dried, so it, it warped and moved more than it would have otherwise. Mm. Um, and then finding a story about how we could then replace that at the end of its life because it won't last as long as, as Siberian larch because it's less dense. And so planting trees at the same time as felling the original ones in order to set that cycle up. And the whole of that project is then fired by a wood, uh, well, it's a wood-fired boiler, so you can burn the cladding at the end of it. So there were lots of, there's lots of kind of feedback loops in the learning as we kind of went along, which informed that project, and then and then went into the next one, which was a completely different construction, which was made of cob. Mm. And so I think initially we every project we said should be should have a different constructional system. Yeah. So a different framing system or, or whether it's masonry or cob or timber or steel or whatever it might be. But there was, that was again, that was quite conscious from our point of view that we said, we almost felt like we'll, we'll kind of revisit this, this construction technique in, in a year or two whilst we develop these other systems. Um, but, yeah. but it was about the, I think the material qualities and the quality of light and, and, and weather were a huge factor. You probably didn't know it at the time, but TPREM was such a defining project for mm. the future practice, even though we weren't really officially, we didn't have a business at that point. Mm. We were just two friends doing a project and, and it working together. Um, but it, it set in place a lot of the values that are now quite kind of inherent in, in the practice and, and those that we try to impart onto our team at the office. The, the principles behind most of our work are pretty straightforward and rational and the plans um, are very kind of axial and, and quite straightforward. But then I think as you describe, you know, when you kind of visit the studio, you see that actually the studio is kind of over brimming with samples and mock-ups that we're making and it's a much more kind of uh, hands-on and dirty process mm -hmm. than, it, than it sounds in a way. Um, so, so ideally we, we, we try and make those big the, the big decisions in terms of siting the building, the orientation, all of those things from really sound first principles. And then we, we, we work particularly hard on the, on, on the, yeah, the material resolution um, and, and things which are quite, they're quite subtle, I suppose. But it's interesting because you, yeah, you describe this as a narrative, like a narrative structure within each project that mm -hmm. kind of guides how you think about that project. And I, I think that that's right. But I, I think that um, I think that that narrative is one concerned also with legibility of a sort. 
so that there's a kind of there seems to be continually an aspiration towards legible readings of things. So, so if you take Tebrin, the decision to have the window flush with the slate wall, but deeply punched on the larch wall, yeah. is making a very conscious and legible decision about an aesthetic judgment, but also a resonant spatial one to do with that site and the prevailing conditions, right? Or say, and I think that legibility also extends to form. So, I mean, it's funny, I don't know how form became a dirty word in architecture because, okay, there are formalists, but uh, we're all formalists, right? And it's just about uh, how much ego is invested in the form is the problem. Like all these things, it's not a binary discussion. But I do see in the work a, a kind of very consistent interest in form. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you take the Waterloo Farm Project, there's the two linear structures with the roofs inclined in opposing directions, and they set up yeah. a very clear formal structure, and then you get the projecting eaves, multiple on the animal shelter, mm. singular on your own, and then you get these express dentals of the beams, mm. and say the food production site in Somerset, mm. Mm. it's quite interesting because actually there's a narrative embedded in the formal mm. games that you're playing on that site, yeah. and it has a sort of a, a personality. Yeah. 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 And I'm just interested in those. I mean, do you do you dare talk about form or is it just something that's emergent and pleasing and you just let it go? Or is it something that you're consciously working on? Is it just, does it just come out that way or are you thinking about that? I think we do we do work at it. We work at it quite hard, but it's not the it's not the starting point. No. It's never for, we never start with a kind of formalistic approach and thinking what is this form in the landscape? As opposed to where are the other where are the other drivers, whether they be social or environmental or something, but it's interesting. It comes out when a when a building is not taking the right form in the landscape, or so. If the plan the plan is often kind of working reasonably well from sound principles early on, but the real struggles, the projects that 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 are the real battles, are where the form is not there isn't a natural resolution which is emerging yeah and that's where i think we start to mm-hmm. we start to zoom in and zoom right out and and both ed and i are very happy to completely radically <laughs> change the whole the whole form or, or sighting of a building even you know reasonably late in the process yeah which is which is uh, it's quite disruptive but equally it does every project is so important in a young practice as you know so yeah well, you can't slip no and I think it's interesting that the uh, that makes sense because we kind of talk about it in our office as there's all this endeavour that goes in and it's a sort of a means by bringing something into form and and then and then when that when that's an emergent quality then you can have a real conversation with the mm. project ah that's what you are do you know what yeah. I mean yeah. you're one of those yeah mm. and so then you go well you don't want to be over there you want yeah. to be over here and yeah. it's sort of like. But that, that does take a kind of, uh, well, it has to sneak up on you sometimes, and other times it has to be something that you're kind of consciously fighting for. Yeah. We kind of sometimes ask, when it's said in the office, oh, it's a project now. So there's a mm. distinction between a job and a project. Mm-hmm. And the project is when it's sort of become self-conscious, or yeah. self, it becomes self-aware. The project yeah. has become possessed of itself yeah. and has started to walk and talk. Yeah. Um, and I think this is the thing that's happening. And then actually it's something that looks from the outside like a quite radical decision, mm. like changing the whole shape and position yeah. of a building, to you is not where the effort was. No. <laughs> you know, the effort was in all the stuff till yeah. this thing decided to walk over there. The effort mm. was trying to find out what the project wanted to be. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that seems to be, I mean, various practices come at it in various ways and we all have to sort of put the blinkers on to achieve mm. that. But that does seem to be the, the essential problem of architecture. Mm. In terms of yeah, there's a unique site, there's a unique social structure, there's a unique economic mm. structure and political yeah. structure pertaining to all of us, mm. and there's us. Yeah. <laughs> and if all of us were given those same briefs, it would come out different. Mm. Well, and, and each client and each setup is so completely different, and we're just trying to be a conduit sometimes for that, up to a point. That's mm. the kind of information gathering stage, and then we're saying right now we're going to we're now going to offer back or the project is going to take on its own life as you say the project has its own identity and this is what's driving it now and and it's almost it's almost has its own life and we we're all then just supporting that but that's the point where it becomes compelling and yeah. that's the point at which everyone is kind of buying into what the vision of it is 
And I think that's that's also the risky point in any project. That's where projects fail or or because they're not compelling. People don't they haven't bought into them. The client hasn't said, Well, it's a it's a bigger risk than I thought or or the public are not behind it or whatever it might be. There's so many challenges. Yeah. And and you need that sort of kind of a watershed moment in we've had that in all of our projects where <laughs> where the those are the points where they're saying, Do do we back it, do we fund it? Do we pull it? Our whole public reputation is staked on this. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we all say that we're sort of conduits and negotiators, aren't we? We all mm. are, and yet it always comes out different, mm. regardless of which one. So we're more than that. We are more yeah. than that. Yeah, like a kind of thing. Caesar continually draws parts of his body in mm. sketches that he's making of places, mm. which is just a, it's a, it's a beautiful tick in his drawings you know you see his feet or his hand or whatever or himself sometimes fully formed sitting there mm. in the drawing that he's making of the place but i love it because it sort of says to me look the architect is part of the site yeah and it's not non-contextual to embrace one's own intuition personality and yeah. all of those sorts of things and it sort of gets where play where place where people talk about sensitivity and care it sort of gets left behind yeah and in other places where they talk about more esoteric intellectual concerns, it also gets left behind, mm. which is this kind of delicate negotiation between sight and hand. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but what's your prehistory? So the before you decided, so before you met, there was a decision by both of you to study architecture. Mm. Presumably you didn't know each other before no, college. No. no. So what was that like for both of you? Well, it's interesting. We both were makers in our own way. Um, you were probably more more of an artist than I was. I was more of a maker, but you were also a maker. And I think we, I personally was kind of, I, the, my passions were just all outdoors. They were just to do with tree houses and dens and um, and, and we, we we both grew up um, in the countryside. Yeah, that's a strong. Which I think factor. it's a strong you know, undercurrent. Mm. Um, building things, you know, renovating barns and. Yeah, building dens before that mm. and building bicycles you know we both have a very mm. shared passion for cycling and so mm. building bicycles this would be like getting kits or making them from scratch um not welding the frames but to, to, but building them up you know yeah stripping them down yeah and, you know, different yeah parts. and so that that's kind of an interest in well both the kind of escapism that cycling allows but also the kind of the nuts and bolts of cycling the, the kit itself um, yeah yeah mm. Yeah. And we met when we first met was kind of in our first year on a site visit where we were both on bikes, and the conversation was more about bikes initially and then about the site. Yeah. And then we cycled around together, and cycling was always a big thing because when we did T Pran, it was we had no car. We both were living in London, and we'd get the train down, and then it was a well, it was a twenty-seven mile ride there and twenty-seven mile ride back. And there was a lot of conversation on the way, and and, <laughs> and 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 reading of the landscape. I think that was a really big factor. Yeah, yeah. We've nearly all our sites. I don't, can't think of a site that I haven't cycled to, and I'm sure you're the same. Yeah, yeah. Not um, always all the way from London, but no, that wasn't no, original. No, not, not always from London. <laughs> we cycled to Wales though, from yeah. London once. But but there is that's that's quite a, a nice approach to a site, mm. um, and quite helpful. Especially, I mean, a, you know, a rural site or an out of London site. Yeah, you get so, to understand it. Yeah. To, yeah, situated. And when you were setting out to study architecture, had you any expectations or had you... Or were there any things back then that impacted on you that kind of shaped you in a way? I mean, your dad was an architect. Wasn't my dad it? was an architect, which nearly meant that I didn't do architecture. Yeah, <laughs> no, I was the same. My dad was an architect, but he was very eager that I not do it. Yes, likewise, yeah. yeah. And did you get to have any conversations with him about it? I got to have some. There was one particular one, because I nearly took medicine, um, but that was more as a rebellion than... A lucrative rebellion. <laughs> Could have been. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I ended up taking science A-levels, but that was for two twofold reasons, really. One was to do with, obviously, to do with qualifying for medicine, but the other one was that it, it, I found science easy, so it freed up my time to, uh. to build and to muck around. So really, the main driver was saying, well, I could get the grades, but free up so much time to, to do the stuff that I loved. So uh, I then did a photography A-level on, on the side and other stuff which I was kind of more interested in, more about exploration. Yeah. Um, 
And in that context, like, did you, what do you think that there were things about him working as an architect that were impacting on that decision of yours? Like, what what was the experience of being a child of an architect it was and a successful one? You know, it was, was yeah, it was architect. exciting. That's yeah. what that's what was the inspiring element. Yeah, it was going places, meeting people, which and having conversations, which you wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, you know, the very few jobs allow you to enter other people's worlds in that way that's true um, and for a kid actually that's quite exciting really exciting yeah. and he was always you know he was always enthusiastic about it so even though we didn't we didn't talk much about it we went to interesting places and enthusiasm is normally infectious and yeah, i yeah. certainly found that and for yourself i mean uh, your 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 uncle was an architect um he still is an architect yeah mm. um and he, uh, we used to stay with him as, as children, um, my brother and I, and I recall a memory of sitting at his drawing desk in the attic, and he had this colossal jar of different pens and different implements for drawing, and we'd sit there just drawing, like a very keen sketcher and drawer as a, as a child. I suppose that was a kind of the first instinct that I had that I might want to be an architect. I didn't it's know quite actually, what it was, but yeah. there was that very early childhood, oh, my Uncle Jerry, he's an architect, and that's... He draws all day, he draws for a living, and he's got a big drawing table. It was, <laughs> so I want to do that, I just want to draw. Mm. Um, turns out there's not much that much drawing involved in architecture. Well, Caesar's sketchbooks would, would mm. say that you certain architects are able to keep it up, mm. but I, yeah, I'm envious of them. Mm. Um, I think it's an interesting one, though, isn't it? It's like um, certainly that narrative of knowing the context, like knowing the professional context, I think. It's sort of, it's sort of enabling and it's sort of disabling mm. at the same time. I think it's interesting because I remember in college I was very aware of the pitfalls because in in Ireland the situation was less economically buoyant in the eighties. So mm. all I knew was about the potentials for things, competitions won that had never got built, and mm. all of this sort of stuff. So you were very aware yeah. of its contingencies, of its risk, yeah. I guess, mm. and its excitement. Mm. Um, but I do find it interesting. And it's one of the things that we're very conscious of here in Kingston because we have a very um, varied student body, you know, a very kind of uh, economically and ethically diverse student body. And I think that part of the duty of a school, in a way, say you don't have that in your family, and say you've never had that in your family in the country where you are, I do think it must be more of a hurdle yeah. to understanding how you navigate that mm. discipline. I, I wonder whether it is more incumbent now on schools to be sort of that extended family in a way mm. to kind of show that way forward, not, not in any literal mm. showing by example, because my God, mm. we're not examples. Mm. But do you know what I mean? Like that availability of a conversation with somebody, mm. even if it's just like when I set up my practice, the first thing my dad said to me, 10%, and I said, what do you mean 10%? It's 10% of everything you're asked to design will be built. Mm. and he wow. was bang on the money like wow. pretty much bang on the money <laughs> and even that yeah. which at the time was sort of deflating <laughs> <laughs> sure. but just knowing that someone yeah. had been there and knowing that you could get through all of that yeah. really helps it, it has a huge impact I mean but like you say there's a double edged thing when so my dad died in my third year and I remember almost feeling liberated I've, I've, apart from all of the emotional kind of grief, turmoil and grief, I felt quite liberated, especially after university. I thought it's it's I can now I can now be my own architect. Yeah, there was no shadow being yeah, cast. That's yes. what I thought, but yeah. actually, it's, it's funny. Shadows are long, and uh, they can they haunt you. Pop up <laughs> in the strangest of yeah. places. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. I think that's that. I can absolutely imagine that. Mm. I can absolutely imagine that. Um, it's an interesting one, though, because his practice went on to be hugely successful. Mm. But you seem very clear, or at least the language of your architecture seems very clear. The size of your atelier, physically mm. the building, mm. seems to indicate a certain ambition in terms of a more moderate scale of practice. Is that something that you're consciously pursuing or we, limiting? We constantly talk about it. And we're, yeah. we're, we're quite, we have quite a kind of strict business plan and we look at that, but it's... It's governed by the types of projects, really, more than anything, yeah. and, and the types of clients. So we don't do, we virtually do no commercial work, not for, all of our projects are for the end users, so there's no speculative work at the moment, um, and it's been a real strength to have nearly 10 years of 
of that type of work. Um, and is that, a, is that a choice or is that sort of serendipity? And It's probably a bit of everything. Yeah. But we've never actively pursued developers, for example. Yeah. So we've, we've, the, the people that we've tried to get in front of are the types of clients that we, we like or we want to work with. And we know that they're kind of the paths are often lateral from that point onwards to meet other people in those situations. So, but it's, uh, yeah, so it's something we talk about a lot. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's like, I think as soon as you might have, I mean, how many people in Field and Files now? About 18 to 20 yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. But there comes a point around that number, right? Mm. Where one of you is doing more of the admin, right? Well, we're very lucky. <laughs> We've always prioritised employing enough people to do other, other roles. Okay, so you have office managers. We've always, even when we were three people, we had somebody kind of two days a week helping with that. Great. So that's, okay. that's that's always that's always helped us enormously. I mean, you and I, we we run half the projects each. We have cross reviews all the time. Um, we're kind of very conscious of every yeah. every project. So that frees you up to focus on it those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. makes sense. Mm. Um, because the HR side of things, even on it, so I'm not to be boring. I mean, mm. this is a mm. podcast about architecture, but we only have four, three, yeah. five people in the office. Like three, including the two partners. Mm. And even then, you're sort of like, you want to be aware of what their ambitions are and yeah. what their goals are and when they're not happy and when they are. Mm. And I sort of feel like if we went over 10, I wouldn't know anymore. Mm. Mm. But maybe I'm wrong. You tell me different. Well, if you have enough support, it might. You do. Yeah. You do. Yeah. 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 It helps enormously. Yeah. yeah. And I think we've been very conscious not to grow too quickly. Yeah. Um, and we've grown at about a rate of two a year on average, although it tends to be in sort of steps and then we... Yeah consolidate for a year, take a breath, <laughs> yeah. and then grow a little bit more. Mm. Um, but that feels like a very manageable rate of growth because you don't change too drastically overnight. I think that's been really important mm. in terms of the, the culture of the office. And even from, from 10 to 20 has been quite a big shift in the yeah. culture. But then the, the studio in Waterloo you know, was built, in a way, it's a kind of built representation of the manifesto of our practice. It's mm. the scale we want to be for the five years that we're there. Yeah. Um, it represents you know, we have the space that we need and we want to make samples to make a mess you know mm. to be kind of quite outdoors and um, so it embodies so many of the values in that respect mm. yeah I think I think that is true we've um, the, the culture we, we have to talk about it a lot and there's there's challenges you know inevitable challenges of growth even from in the last when we moved to our studio we were 12 and now we're 18 and you know we've got some part time people and things so that's a that in itself is a real challenge. Um, we did we took the whole team to Porto this year. That was really f really fundamental actually in bringing everyone together, having a day where we talked about it together, where we yeah. kind of set out the the activities. For example, like eating together. Three years ago, we brought in office lunches once every two weeks or so, and we funded so that it's five pounds a head. Somebody cooks, but the conversations that flow from that. Not necessarily architectural, but yeah, about culture yeah. and about where did you learn this? Who, you know, where did where did you get get these ingredients or whatever it might be? They kind of it it somehow brings everyone together and makes us more uh, outward looking. Yeah, yeah, because it, it it does seem to be that kind of internal culture within an office mm -hmm. is where people can all contribute. I think it's such a hard thing to cultivate and preserve, you mm -hmm. know, um, and it's one of those strange things where the vast majority of architects, well, not the vast majority, but the majority of architectural graduates will be working for other people in some form mm. or another. And it's such a huge and valuable part of what it is that we do that, uh, you know the way a university is this kind of cultural hotbed, mm. that the best offices seem to allow that conversation to continue. Yeah. You know, where there's scope for... Oh, and I used to love it as a student, sitting in the studio just for hours on end and just talking utter nonsense to yeah. people. But you were working hard. But that's that's, that's what we loved as well. I think and we, we, we set up whilst doing competitions. You know, that was the first, the first thing was that Ed and I had very different kind of skill sets and possibly approaches, but we started doing competitions and we found that we were having conversations and, and drawing these different skills together into one, into one thing, which was then being presented and that our kind of mutual different differences, I suppose, were real strengths. Um, but also that, that studio culture, 
was amazing. You know, we loved it. We both worked through the night in our second year all the time on, yeah, yeah. on these competitions. And it was, it was so much fun. And actually, you know, the after hours conversations were often far better. Uh, and so when we did set up, we, that was very conscious. We said, we love the studio culture. We all want to be in one space. We want a kind of microcosm of the best of university culture. Yeah. So having a workshop in the space or connected, um, having enough space to experiment, everyone everyone having their own their own space where they can draw and make things and and be part of just the, be part of the same conversation sometimes. That's just interesting that you bring up competitions because you've won like some of your work through design competitions and mm. some of your work through other procurement s- systems. Mm. And where are your views on the various systems by which buildings are now well, awarded to architects? Oh, well, in, in, in general, like most architects, we find the whole procurement systems a nightmare. But yeah. um, last year we felt that competitions were serving us very well. And this year we feel like we're kind of, you know, being hauled over the coals, the same as many architects. Either through competitions that don't, um, there's no actual outcome. There's no, there's no project at the end of it. This year there's been some heritage projects that have been like that. The funding's been uncertain. They've run a competition before the project is actually mm. assured. Mm. Um, and it's brutal, you know, I think there's no doubt. It's, it, it, financially, it's completely brutal. And in terms of people's time and the respect for the profession, I think it's a, it's a massive challenge. It's a privilege to do them for our culture, you know, from, from the point of view when we can afford to and when we go for it. The, the teams working on competitions grow really close and the actual outputs are often quite good and it accelerates that whole process. But from the point of view of running a practice, it's a kind of inhumane way to work, win work. Yeah, and what are the alternatives? Though? Mm. I don't know. Our preferred way of winning work is normally invited competition yeah. where there's a pre-selected group of anywhere between, say, four and... 12 say architects I mean if the larger the number they need to then do a, a round one to, to get it down to the design stage um, but actually most of our best projects have not been real design competitions they've been they've been all about process and team and how we're going to work with them and they haven't, they haven't they've explicitly said we're not asking for design at this stage it's not just going to be a beauty contest yeah uh, and we sell that yeah. exactly. We always say our preferred route is to is to to win work through conversations and coming to visit us in our studio, meeting our previous clients, understanding how where we go from here. Because otherwise, we're always presenting something that that represents our kind of gleaning of the knowledge of that time, as opposed to a deeper reading of site and and everything else which goes into it. Understanding a client. Yeah. When clients won't meet us before a competition, for example, which often happens, it's a massive challenge to design them something appropriate. It's bizarre, right? Yeah, yeah it I is. It's a real turning point for the Hamilton competition, for mm. example, when um, the first interview was actually at the college, but then there was a second round of mm. interview. We invited them to come see our studio. Mm. I think it was down to two practices then, and that was such a pivotal moment uh, yeah. in the kind of relationship and being able to show them our values and our, you know, yeah. our place, how we work. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I mean, I don't, I mean, it's a curious one because the invited competition one is fairer, but who's on that list? Mm, quite. You know, there's a moment where you're, the spotlight's on you yeah. and you're on that list, but the world's a fickle place mm. and it moves elsewhere and then you're wondering, why is the bonus stop ringing? Yeah. And then there's this other one where the open design competition yeah, I can see that it has become an abuse. But then I sort of wonder, and it's probably completely naive, if everything was a design competition, you'd only get 10 people entering all of them. Mm. Because there just simply isn't enough time mm. yeah. and space. It's their rarities producing this problem. Yeah. And they're, so I don't know that they're bad in and of themselves. Uh, they are bad because of the way that they have allowed to become. Yeah. And the level of production. I mean, you look at the... I mean, they were very beautiful drawings, but if you look at the level of work that was required to win the Pompidou competition, which is a beautiful building and a beautiful competition entry, and you compare that to a 3 million euro Riva competition, what you're expected to know about that building at a first stage, there's just no, there's no comparison. (laughs) And there's no room for risk and invention after the award of the Mm -hmm. competition, which is also quite weird. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I wonder, I mean, I don't know, I mean, the, 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 one of the strange benefits of, of the Brexit thing might be in Ireland that we'll decouple the EU procurement thing from the UK model of how it's been done, which has always been turnover, mm -hmm. SAQs, all this kind of PQQs, all that sort of stuff. And it might become something else, we don't know. Because the procurement model that pertains in these islands is the one that the British Civil Service came up with in response to the EU single market and then mm -hmm. was shared. And it's so flawed, it's mm. so terrible, and it mm. produces such awful, awful work. Mm. I mean, it has to be said, you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, where the quality criteria is a big essay about filing procedures in your office, <laughs> mm. you know. Yeah. And you're kind of going, okay, we can either have a cultured conversation about architecture or mm. we can talk about filing. Yeah. But yeah. they're not the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, do you have to do all that stuff? Do you get involved in those OJU? We don't do many OJUs, we do a lot of. Uh, a lot of other PQQs though, and yeah. uh, ITCs and everything. Yeah, so I guess some of them are, are definitely kind of connected <laughs> to Oju, but yeah, it's not fun. And last year we seemed to have the formula, and this year we've not quite got the formula, and it's really it's really hard to to know pin down sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, we'd we'll always be debating it. I think I think it's a, it's, it's one of those ones. If we're always looking at it, hopefully other people have cracked it, but nobody seems yeah. to have. Um, so before we wrap up, uh, we always like to close with the same question, which is, if you had a piece of advice to somebody setting out to study architecture today, what would it be? Well, we might have two answers for you. <laughs> Good. Well, the more the merrier. Okay. So I, th I think my my answer would be about being strategic and not in a cynical way but about about gaining the breadth of experience that that means that you can then make the right decisions down the line because you have you we're all learning all the time this conversation you know we're all effectively still studying architecture yeah yeah, yeah. um and and there can be there can be a risk that you get taken into a certain realm of architecture and you do two or three years and you feel like you're trapped as whatever it might be. Yeah. A commercial architect or a school's architect or this or that. And, and that you, you're trapped in that practice because of all the life reasons that force people down certain routes. But especially in those early early years when you're studying and between, between part one and two, being having your head up and speaking to as many people as possible, attending attending the lectures, listening to various <laughs> podcasts, you know, just, uh, you're broadening your, you're broadening your mind at those stages. And it's, it's the second half of your career where you can be more focused and, um, we don't know what the future's going to hold. So no, it's true though. It needs to be said, you know, you can learn anything from any practice. And I think you, you're really learning in your first two years, two and a half years. And of course you continue to learn. Mm. But thereafter, you're a net contributor to that culture, mm. both financially and culturally. And if that culture isn't one that is responsive to your desires for architecture, they will begin to dissolve mm. if you stay there. Do you know what I mean? I think yeah. it's this funny thing, which is mm. that it happens to a few people where really talented, amazing people, and they, for some reason, forget that they can just leave the job. Yeah. And they become the person they never wanted to become for a while before exactly. they kind of rediscover themselves. And it doesn't really get talked about that mm. much. Yeah. Um, but the decision to stay beyond three years, I think, is because you're continuing to gain and contribute. And there are other value systems. They can be economic, but not only. Yeah. That keep you connected with that place. Mm. And that give you a vital presence in that mm. place. Um, it's something we try and say to the students here. But it's a really good piece of advice. Yeah. Employers might not like to hear. No, <laughs> but, but it's not all about employers, is it? That's that's the key. I think, I think there's a there's a sense that um, people don't have, uh, they they don't have the ability to to move around like they actually do. Um, especially in when the when the economic climate's tough. Yeah. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah. And your piece of advice? I think. Um, Third's advice was terrific, <laughs> but to 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 balance that, I think I would also stress the importance of of gaining um, really sound understanding of building physics, of construction, mm. of structural design, of, of all of those kind of um, tenets of. 
being you know a master builder which is essentially what architect means um, I think so many architects are actually leaving school without a kind of core set of skills about how to make a building um, it's certainly something I felt uh, coming out of the AA for example albeit there was a there was a value in in the kind of urban uh, learning that, that happened there um, but I think also to balance that I think really working on kind of communication as well is, is crucial and the way that one presents their work is just so important as you emerge from university as you're able to kind of present to a practice to get a job to future clients I think whether that's through um, spoken communication or through the representation itself I think yeah. it's such an important skill um, but yeah so many architects that we uh, interview coming up certain schools you know are, are far less equipped with really tangible skills about you know and a, a kind of good basic understanding of how to put building together I think it's I know but it's extraordinary I mean you don't want to be I mean this is going to sound cruel but it's not cruel it's not meant cruelly like we get applications with swoopy swappy algorithmic derived forms and they wonder why we're not interested in employing them. You just go, well, there's nothing in your CV that indicates you have any interest in anything that we do. So why are you applying to us? I do get confused that this, if that student is genuinely interested in working for us, say, or you, yeah. why isn't the school equipping them? Because if yeah. the student's interest is more profound than the interest of their tutors, mm. and so chances are, if they like your work, chances are they might not want to have done that mm that master's unit mm. and I, I, I kind of I, I find that whole uh, forced esoterica in education particularly in London I find it really mm. an annoying mm. and problematic <laughs> and problematic yeah I mean and also it's just because it's, it, whenever you try and have a debate about it you're posited as some kind of reactionary mm. and no you're just trying to talk about education and the discipline and yeah. what people might want yeah and they're saying, no, no, we're trying to, we're trying to change practice. We're, we're about future practice. And you're going, I'm really sorry, but future practice is made by practitioners. Mm -hmm. No matter how much an academic wants to think that they are, yeah. they're not. And if they want to make a future practice, put a sign up and yeah. make some work. But if you're not doing that, yeah. you're not at the table. Yeah. And I, I, I do think there's a few people playing at being a practitioner in the safe walls of an unfireable job in academia I just think that's not acceptable yeah. not reasonable yeah it's bloody tough delivering buildings <laughs> it's, it's so yeah and, and that attitude towards construction which I suppose is what we we want to do with talking about later you know it's about that it's, it, it's about the tangible it is tough but it's joyful as mm. well I mean it's that funny thing where if you're not prepared for it you'll just drown in it mm. but if you have that kind of persistence it's an interesting one isn't it um, but you know because I've been graduating now 16 years 17 years God, 17 years and you realise that diligence and perseverance mm. trumps talent 9 times out of 10 mm. and a talented person with perseverance is pretty formidable yeah and very difficult to very difficult to say no to long term the world opens up to those people yeah. in architecture you just have to keep doing this thing over and over and over again until either your head gives in or the wall does in, a, in that kind of uncom <laughs> uncompromising way you know, yeah. you, where you where you know what you're, you're striving for even if you don't know what it is there's something about quality which is so hard to define but lots of the best architects know when they get there yeah. it's like we were talking about with the project once it reaches that critical point where it has its own its own identity its own life almost and and then we're we're then supporting it but it i think there's something similar with with our careers and with how how you kind of become i think architect. that's right i think that is right and there's needs in a career to reflect and change direction and mm -hmm. repackage it all and re-understand it all but I do think that thing, the schools that are oriented about the physics of building or representation or about the actual making of a building, mm. you, you learn the feeling. Mm. The, as you say, you recognise it when you see it. 
why is that pleasing? Why is that good? Well, I, I don't know, but I recognise it when I drew it. Mm. And okay, that's, that's the knowledge. Yeah. It's robust to all these challenges, because we can talk about projects from a literal nuts and bolts point of view, or from a social point of view, but there'll be people, there'll be critics from every angle. Oh, always. And so you, you need those. It needs to be a poetic project, but it must stand up and it must endure. Yeah. So that's a really nice note to end on, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Before signing off, I'd just like to exhort you to subscribe or to leave a comment or review. It all helps. Um, and to thank uh, and to credit the various people involved. The music is by Rainbow Architecture. Um, and thanks to the Register team, Matt Wells and Matt Phillips, who are working on publications and other aspects of the Register programme here in Kingston. Christoph Luder, who helps with funding and funding bids for our colleagues. And Laura Evans, who co-produces this uh, series of lectures and podcasts with myself. I do hope you join us next time. Thank you. Thank you.